That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, I'm speaking with one of my heroes, Dr. Catherine Young. She's the former Senior Director of Science Policy at the Biden Cancer Initiative and currently the Executive Director of the Shepherd Foundation. This is an extraordinary human being. She's a presidential leadership scholar, a TED fellow, got a postdoctorate fellowship in biomedical engineering at Cornell. You're going to love this show. Dr. Catherine Young, have a listen. You're in town for what? Well, this morning, um, our team at the Shepherd Foundation met with uh, the TED team. So you might have heard of the TED Talks and, and those things. The that act- whole idea is worth sharing that, stuff. Exactly. Um, so we met with that team because they have what is called the Audacious Prize, where they uh, fund organizations for multi-million dollars over multi-years. Um, and we were talking about an idea worth sharing with them. I hope it was a good one. I hope so. We'll find out. <laughs> no judgments. No judgments. Right. <laughs> well, we're thrilled you're here. Thank um, you. It's a privilege to have you here. I've been a huge fan, as you know, uh, of all your work, which is substantial. Don't Thank do LinkedIn you. unless you're prepared <laughs> to see the the, the the resplendent experiences you've oh, had in goodness. your career. Well, I, I haven't used that, that word in a long time. Wow. Yes. Thank you. That's the so SAT much. word of the day. Okay, yeah, I'll have to look that one up after I leave. <laughs> well, we, we have to start with you. Are, you were born to South Africa. I was. I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, and lived there for 18 years, born and raised. Mm-hmm. Uh, moved to the States right after Nelson Mandela came into power with the end and abolishment of apartheid. Good. So came here to the U.S. with my parents to North Carolina. Yeah, I was going to say, so I have in your, you went to the University of Missouri. Yes, for How'd grad you get school. There? I know. So it's, you know, I've kind of leaped and bounded all over the U.S. Uh, so landed in Charlotte, North Carolina first from South Africa um, and went to the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Um, and after that, realized that um, I loved science. I wanted to get a PhD in science. The University of Missouri has an excellent um biomedical sciences program and that's what i wanted to do so ended up going to university of missouri in the middle of the country so a great experience in terms of you know just living in another part of of the country was the science bug always in you it was you know i had an older brother he was seven years older than me um and he had such a strong affinity for science and math and i think because of him having him as a role model in a way growing up really just um not forced but just the trajectory was always straight because Mm. he was in front of me and I wanted to do what he did Um, and I I often look back at that and think gosh you know what if I didn't have my brother as a role model Uh, what what would I be doing today and so for me it has really embedded this desire to be a role model and to really encourage others 
uh, specifically for women uh, in the STEM field. I mean, you were pioneering the day. Those weren't even words back then. <laughs> Wasn't using those words no, back then. No, those were the new words today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Back then, it was called industrial arts. <laughs> you learn how to do other. You learn how to do shit that just wasn't like books and stuff. You know exactly. And and I will say, kind of growing up in that year, especially in South Africa, um, you know, women typically were not encouraged to do those types of subjects. So you know, the math and the science, and they were more encouraged to do at that time. And I'm totally giving my age away, but like typewriting and things yeah. like that. Um, just go do stenography. Yeah, or, or home great? economics. Yes, and home, I had I had no no interest yeah. in any of that. So really, it's been a part of me from from the beginning, and I think really because of the encouragement of my family. And as an underachiever, you then <laughs> went to Cornell for a postdoc in. Spoiler alert, I went to Binghamton for biomedical engineering. No way. And then I promptly gave up after organic chemistry for at 7 a.m. Oh my, my sophomore year for a semester. Well, I'm surprised I, that you even got into organic for because, <laughs> my goodness, that is just, yeah, a whole journey on itself. It so. was insane. I mean, I did well in high school and they're like, oh, yeah. Binghamton is just far away enough. Right. And biomedical five-year master's program. And I'm yeah. like, nope. <laughs> my You're dad's like, ah, like, nope. tuition. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, it's, it's, yeah, it's not for everybody. But so my, my postdoc was in a biome biomedical engineering department, um, which was fascinating on its own because again, it was looking at a problem that I did in my PhD work was, which was all in the brain. My, my PhD is all in neuroscience, looking at that problem in a totally different way. So biomedical engineering is all about the tools that you use, um, the instruments that you can design to be able to look into the brain or measure things in the brain. Um, and my PhD was very much looking at how the brain operates in, in terms of physiology and, and the body. So it was a it was a fascinating switch because it was still at the core the same thing that we were studying, but using very different tools and technology. Well, to it's do still so. like the most mysterious thing in the universe. And it's what really drew me to the brain in the first place because it is such a black box. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even either the more we know, and I felt this way studying the brain, the more we know, the more we don't know about it because you realize how incredibly complex and integrated the brain is and that we have so much more to learn and understand about it. Yeah. I should also just bring up that Andrews from Rochester. I went to Binghamton, you went to Cornell. We, we cannot do. mention... We cannot avoid mentioning Wegmans. We cannot. I think it's going to be a recurring theme on my show is Wegmans. <laughs> we York would all State. be, yeah. I, I mean, Wegmans was a staple every Saturday morning. <laughs> it's the tie that binds. Yes. It's the it truly tie that is. Binds. It is. Yes. I mean, we would um, not be welcome back to that part of the world if we did not mention Wegmans no. and the impact it had on our lives. I don't think I told you this, Andrew, when I, my orientation at Binghamton was summer of, of God, 1992. Wegmans was part of orientation. Was it? What? They took all the downstate kids on a trip to Wegmans no. on the bus off off campus communication and we went to Wegmans. And I'd never been, obviously, in like these these agape jaw dropping faces wow. of Long Islanders to Staten Island. That's like, so what funny. is this Mecca that I've been denied knowing about my right? whole adolescence it's kind of how i felt when i first moved to the states from south africa where we had literally about two 
different types of cereal to choose from. And then you go into a place like Wegmans where you have 200 different types of cereals yes. to choose from. Yes. I mean, it is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think, you know, why do we need so many choices? We don't really, really. need. That's America. Yeah, it is America. It's just a hashtag America. It is America. definitely a thing. Yeah. I, 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 want, I want to talk. I didn't know the DOD did other stuff beside, you know, blow things up and invent bombs and stuff. The yeah. DOD is amazing. It is amazing. And they find all sorts of incredible research. They do all these things that you don't know that they do. Talk about exactly. your experience there. Uh, it was a absolute life-changing experience for me. I had gone from my postdoc work, uh, realizing at the time that I didn't want to spend my life in the lab and that I wanted to do something more that had a global impact. Outdoor and- cat stuff. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so I um, applied for a fellowship called the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Science and Technology Fellowship, which allows PhDs to uh, get placed in a federal agency for two years. And the idea is that as a PhD, you learn about the science policy process. And in return, you're able to share your knowledge and skill sets with the government agency um, because, as we all know, there's a total dearth of scientists in federal mm. agencies, especially in, yeah. in a place like the DOD when you're working at the policy level. Right. Um, fantastic program and it really allows people who are interested in other areas beyond their PhDs and beyond working in a lab experience to see what else you can do with those skill sets that you've just gained after many, many years of studying. Um, And so I was placed at the Department of Defense in the Biological, Nuclear, and Chemical Warfare Division. Gesundheit. Right? Oh, my God. (laughs) That was a mouthful. (laughs) Surprise, I can actually still say that. Um, But essentially, what I learned during that process was that the DOD is such a force in diplomacy. Um, And so what we worked on specifically in my kind of tenure there, which was about two and a half years, was um, first I worked on the the former Soviet Union uh, portfolio, which is... Just that. I mean, first I had to Google that, where (laughs) where that was. But once I figured out that, what you learn is that these countries um, still have a lot of remnants of chemical weapons, of biological weapons. You can think of anthrax, for example. Um, um, And... The problem is, is that with these things still sitting around, a lot of them are not secured. Um, They still actually pose a great threat, not only to that specific country, but to the rest of the world and the United States included. So the United States plays a really big role in developing relationships with these countries and their governments to help secure them, uh, provide security. If they are actually doing research with very um, dangerous pathogens, the United States will um, upgrade their equipment, upgrade their labs, um, provide the best protocols to use so that they can do it in the best and most secure way possible. And your role in this was to... My role in this was um, the office that I worked with kind of oversaw all of that kind of diplomacy. So I was very fortunate enough to be able to go over to a lot of these countries with um, diplomatic envoys to meet with the government officials to talk about what the U.S. was going to do and um, and 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 see that process unfold. Um, my biggest uh, kind of impactful experience during that time was with the outbreak of Ebola in Western Africa. Yes. And I was switched to the African portfolio and actually got to travel to Liberia during the time um, because 
it, it was a fascinating experience. You would walk through hospitals where there would be Ebola patients and there would be fridges in the corridors basically with Ebola samples in them. Just just there, freely accessible for anybody to wow. be able to open up and see. Oh and goodness. so our role was to be able to secure those those samples and to help them um, with that because again, it, they, they thought they might be a possibility for nefarious actions for people coming in, taking those samples and using them in potentially, you know, uh, a terrorism type What a life event. experience. Oh, I mean, it was. It's like one of those things, how'd I get here? I think about that all the time, to be honest. A lot of my experiences have just been so uh, world-opening and and uh, completely transformative in a way, and that was one of them, absolutely. So from there, from there again, like we're doing the door of the explorer <laughs> LinkedIn conversation here yes. because it's, it's so rife with, with opportunities here. I mean, you had a stint at the Foreign Commonwealth Office, yes, but I, then you. Mm -hmm. found a way to be part of the uh, moonshot with the Biden initiative. I did. So I worked at the British Embassy as their science advisor. Um, uh, again, kind of really at the intersection between science and policy between the two countries, which was, again, a life-changing experience. Yeah. Um, and But that led me, again, you know, w working at the British Embassy, you can only go so far uh, before you have to become a diplomat to be mm. able to then make those decisions. Sure. And I reached that glossed ceiling pretty quickly. Um, and so I was I was open to new opportunities and looking to see what that next step would be for me. And I was so fortunate to be able to uh, get the position as the senior director of science policy for the Biden Cancer Initiative. They were looking for somebody right at the same time I was looking for new opportunities. And it was just one of those experiences that um, it was the right time at the right place and just you know, right all around. So, I mean, with my advocacy hat on running stupid cancer, I never felt that BCI got the, the, uh, sort of the schoolhouse rock understanding mm -hmm. of what it meant to the average person out there. Right. If you're able to schoolhouse rock, what its initial purpose was, how would you explain that? You know, it was such a, a unique organization in that it didn't focus on one specific cancer. Um, rather, our goal was to look at the system that cancer resides in, um, identify those barriers that if you could remove them, you could really accelerate the path towards treatment and support for, pa for patients. Um, and we realized that the way to do that was to bring the right people together that had the skills and the resources to be able to do that. And our power was really Vice President Biden, Dr. Biden, um, who were, you know, our leaders in this organization that could bring those people together. And there's not many organizations that have that kind of power to be able to bring uh, who they needed at the right time and, and have everybody being absolutely 100 percent dedicated to that cause. Yeah, the way I, I was to understand it, and <clears throat> as I came to learn way more about it, mm -hmm. is it was a very holistic scientific approach. It Absolutely. wasn't a very linear no. scientific approach nope. where research is research and it's right. indoor cats and labs Absolutely. and process and blah, blah. This was, again, the regrettable tragedy of, of Bo's passing right. led them to appreciate that it wasn't just more than cure. There was so much more in the in the ether of understanding why and how absolutely yeah i think all of my experiences have have lent to this view of 
first of all, you cannot accomplish something big by yourself. And you have to recognize that there are a thousand different players that need to come together in order to really make a significant difference because everybody is bringing with them a different type of skill set, a different way to view the problem, a different way of thinking about solutions. And if you don't have that holistic group together, you're just not going to get to the right solution. Um, and I think the Biden Cancer Initiative has really been the closest I've ever been to to really kind of bring that solution to really big problems as well. Yeah, someone once told me early on that collaboration is the new competition mm -hmm. and you guys really em embodied that. Absolutely. There was from the get go, we wanted to make sure that people understood that we were not a competitor in the space and, and cancer, especially when it comes to the nonprofit organizations can can be or at least the, my, my experience is that a pretty competitive space um, we wanted to make it very clear that our goal was to elevate empower and to provide a platform for the work that was already being done because one of the biggest challenges we found was that patients or family members or researchers didn't even know of some of the incredible work that was being done because it's so buried yeah. and we wanted to uplift that a bit a center of excellence that uh, that is capable of convening and bringing people together. Exactly. Uh, exactly right. And is there an organization or an institution that's prepared to do that now? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I look at Vice President Biden and Dr. Biden as these two individuals that were really able to radically transform the way we work in the cancer space mm. that I haven't seen uh, people at that you know kind of status or level do before, and and not to say that there are not people out there who are leading this effort, but um, you know them uh, with, with Vice President Biden stepping back because of the the presidential election, um, it has kind of left this this temporary. Gap. Bit of a vacuum. Yeah, I, a I, I would believe vacuum. that. Um, and but the on on the on the positive side is that regardless of the outcome that will come from this, he will return to that work. Yes. Um, in in whatever capacity that is, that I absolutely believe. So in the time that you were there, that it existed, and I'm just going to say phase one. Mm -hmm. What do you think was the uh, most tangible or tactical accomplishment you can be proud of? Um, you know, I think for us, I mean, there were a couple, um, we, we were really at kind of the precipice of a lot of stuff that was about to start in the implementing stage. I think we never quite managed to get to the point where we could look back and say we have an absolute tangible product for, for somebody. But I think what one of our greatest, um, contributions was just the mobilization of a lot of the communities and rethinking a lot of how we approach these solutions. So going back to the fact that um, bringing the people together who may not have been sitting at the table together before, but then having had that experience understood that it's important that we need to uh, collaborate on a, on a whole on a whole host of things. So, but we were focused on a, a whole range of issues um, all the way from, you know, um, uh, prevention to the uh, looking at 
at transforming and reforming clinical trials and what that would look like, um, patient access to treatment and cost of care, uh, to data sharing. So these were, were massive problems that require a lot of time and energy and um, it will be interesting to see how we might be able to continue that work um, once, once uh, we get them back. Back with our guest after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I think what I one of my biggest takeaways of the ongoing conversations was this idea of, you know, care isn't just clinical. Care is is human. Absolutely. And <clears throat> there was a lot of talk about supporting the nursing community. Oh, yes. way much more. Right. Because they're underserved. There aren't enough of them in this country. There's a huge gap in 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 pay and access and 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 even the recognition of the value they have to the health economic Absolutely. outcomes conversation Absolutely. out there. I was really jazzed that that was something that was living in the mindset or the 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 philosophy of what needed to be accomplished because I cannot speak enough about how critical the nursing profession is to making everything suck a little less. Everything we did had a nurses or several influence in it. We would never have a conversation or tackle a big problem without that perspective because um, as, a, as a group, we, we absolutely understood the value of that. And, you know, it's just like anything in life where if you take, if you look at a problem or, or um, a service, it, it's often several layers down mm -hmm. where the actual work gets done. Right. And those are the people that you need to be able to tap in who often hold the answers to your solutions yes. or your problems. Uh, right. But yet we often fail to include them in those conversations. And until we actually do a better job at that, I think we're always going to be spinning around in circles. Yeah, we would talk about a portfolio of end users. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This, this, um, this subject of it, it sounds like the Biden Cancer Initiative was moving toward um, the establishment. Is this too strong a word of standards or best practices gathered absolutely. across all of these organizations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the the things we were looking at was actually standardizing data, for example. So the idea that you know data 
data sharing is a really big issue. But even if we do share data, mm. if you don't have it in a one standardized form, it, it's really of no use. So mm. it is looking at the system and, and being able to define what those standards are that allows the system to work on a much smoother scale to allow then for acceleration towards those treatments. So yeah, absolutely, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, there's no babble fish yet that unifies the way different health systems that have been evolving over the last couple of years can talk to each other. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, this really talks to how embedded our healthcare system is entrenched in really bad culture. Mm-hmm. Um and and you know, I'm probably preaching to the choir now, but a lot of what what we were dealing with really ultimately boiled down to if people decided that they wanted to change it, they could. Yeah. And that was simply the, the simplest answer. But because it's so difficult to kind of change trajectory of massive scaled systems like a, a hospital or healthcare system, and because it's also entrenched right now in financial gain, um, it's very hard to start changing that trajectory until you get the buy-in of people who not only can make those decisions to make the change, but actually believe that this is the way that it needs to be done now. And, that, and that's hard. Yeah, the uh, I'm mad as hell and can't take it anymore is starting to really crest. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And I think more and more we have come to the light in terms of the voice of the patient in everything that we do too. <clears throat> so we spoke about nurses being so important, yes. but my goodness... We, we cannot solve these issues without the patients themselves too having a voice in this. And I do believe there is this momentum growing where patients are getting a lot louder and they are starting to become way more educated about what their rights are and, and, and what should be done for them. Right. Um, and and I, I'm excited to see that there is this kind of mobilizing of patients and their voices together to start really shifting the needle forward. Because I really think that that at, at the crux of it is what, what we need. Well, we, we talk all the time about healthcare is not a demand market. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> no one wakes up and says, I can't wait to go to, you know, uh, MD Anderson exactly. one day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's no way to know what the customer wants because you can't expect them to know what they need. Right. And how do you re- reverse engineer a market that doesn't want to be there in the first place? Exactly. But you're only listening to the people who are already in the market. Exactly. So how do you help the people that aren't in the market? Right. It's this phenomenally ridiculous like Neil deGrasse Tyson level head exploding absolutely conversation to have yeah 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 <laughs> no but it it's so important and and I think if anything that I've learned it's it's that um the U.S. especially is so well positioned to start making those changes because we have the people we have the infrastructure we have the mind, the, the powerful minds that can come up with innovative solutions. And um, we just need to to actually start getting stuff done. And the arrival at a solid recommendation for a solution is only part of it. Absolutely. You alluded to uh, the financial interest associated with many players right. uh, in, in things not changing or in things changing in a way that benefits them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so it seems like a very important aspect of the convening, convening power Absolutely. of the Biden Cancer Initiative is to get those people out in public and to and to help them 
speak in public and be accountable for absolutely making those decisions. And and, and vice it is a political act. Uh, it is, and Vice yeah. President Biden was was very good at that and not afraid to do that. Um, and and you bring up another good point because even though we were really good at convening, um, and and a lot of people will go shake you know nod their heads at this it's, it's not just about the convening it's about the execution and implementation of the idea which Correct. is really hard so you get a lot of you know motivation and inspiration from from these groups when they come together at the table but when everybody leaves and goes home it just falls flat and yep. so the one of the biggest challenges I see is how do we continue that momentum going forward and keeping people motivated to push that forward, especially in our case where we were really depending on people, people's goodwill to do this in and above their day jobs. Right. You know, so a lot of what we were asking people to do was not necessarily a part of their baked in job description um, and what they were being um, evaluated on on their job. So uh, so it is it, it requires people to really go that one step further. Yeah. And the, to the retention completely. strategy. Yes. The retention <laughs> strategy. Yeah. yeah. And but I will say that I was so surprised to see yeah. just how dedicated people were to do to work on that. Uh, so in our time left, because you can't sit still, <laughs> you're now doing a million other things. But let's talk about the Shepherd Foundation, because that's yes, very interesting in your foray to rare disease. Absolutely. So uh, my my current position is the executive director of the Shepherd Foundation. Um, it is a foundation that is focused on rare cancers. Um, and you know, coming from the Buying Cancer Initiative, and I, I, I've been so influenced by my time there that I honestly see this as an opportunity to do very much similar work, um, but now focused on the rare cancer community. Although, you know, in, in all honesty, when I think of rare cancer and what we might do to be able to help or support, it really, that extends to the entire cancer community as a whole. But I am, I am so excited to have this position. Um, I see rare cancer patients as a, a community that really, um, have been served a lot of injustice and inequality, especially when it comes to um, treatment options and support and research dollars that go their way. And so I'm excited to really try and try and push that forward. Yeah, justice is a word that gets thrown around a lot. But mm -hmm. I believe that when you're, we say when you enter the shit happens store, right. there's no greeter. Right. And how do you live your life with dignity in a market you didn't want to belong? Exactly. In? Exactly. But that's extraordinary. And again, like having a partnership with the National Organization of Rare Disorders now where I'm becoming like this, the new voice of, right. of rare disease. Yep. I'm learning so much about not just that I am in the rare disease as any young adult cancer is mm -hmm. a rare disease. Yep. But how do you even wrap your head around millions of people living and suffering with who just want to have some dignity Absolutely. and live a great life. Absolutely. And, you know, in our research, we've discovered that out of the 400 different types of cancers there are, 380 of them are rare. Yeah. Which means that out of the 1.2 million people that will be diagnosed, 550,000 of them will have a rare cancer. Right. So our message really, and, and you know, I, I believe Nord is very much in aligned with this, is that rare is not rare. No, it's not. And we have to change that narrative. 
And, and, and because of that, if we can change that narrative, you know, we can start changing the federal dollars that go towards it. And yeah. if you change that, you change the development pipeline for therapeutics and drugs. And that then starts to open up the opportunities for those patients to live with dignity and, and you know, have an extended life. I mean, Nord's huge coup was getting the Rare Disease Act passed, mm-hmm. but that's, I think, first steps right there should totally be a, a revisitation of what that means in 2020 absolutely and dig down into how we improve what clearly still needs a lot of improving absolutely and i'm, I'm so um heartened by the the nord rare cancer coalition as well um you know it, it, it's it's the coming again those convenings of those types of organizations and that thought leadership that really starts to change the way we think about things and and push time in um, and and money towards those things. Yeah. So. And, and as we look at the uh, Shepherd Foundation, um, I'm very interested in knowing uh, the specific approach that you bring. You're focused on rare cancers. Yeah. And um, and and what are the what are the areas of, of, of greatest interest for for the foundation? Absolutely. Um, so the first thing that I did when I joined was I I kind of did a landscape analysis of of rare disease rare cancer organizations that already exist, because my thought is that um, you know if we can start to galvanize the community together, we can have so much more power and impact. Um, so I I we identified about two hundred and forty organizations. We've reached out to every single one of them. We um, gave them a survey and ask them what are their biggest barriers what are you working on what do you need help with and we, we took that really as the basis of what we might start looking at hmm. so one is molecular diagnostics this is a huge one so the idea that a patient can have a test done to really get their tumor sequenced identify what those mutations are and then either see whether or not there are already targeted drugs or maybe are are eligible for a particular clinical trial is huge. Right. And yet the community um, is very uneducated about the, the molecular diagnostic test, either on the patient side or the clinician side who doesn't offer it. Um, and this is potentially a cost-saving, time-saving, and life-saving test. So we have a huge emphasis on um, the public awareness and education about molecular diagnostics, but also the data that comes from molecular diagnostics and how if we can start pooling that together, we can actually start to group people together in terms of their molecular drivers and start targeting drugs for those patients. So instead of it being lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, it is now what is driving your cancer, which may, you know, be across several different cancers. And that it kind of ushers us into this new era of precision medicine, which is where we are going for. So molecular diagnostics is um, one. We also have a lot of legislative priorities because we believe that we in order to make change, you have to tackle it from all different angles and trying to get federal policy changes is one way we can do that. 
So um, Shepard uh, last year just secured $12.5 million in the federal budget specifically for rare cancer. This was the first time mm. rare cancers ever had a line in the federal budget before. And we're going to push for $50 million this year. So we are trying to tackle it from that federal angle and, and getting everybody on board that this is this is what we need to do. So you continue to be at work in D.C.? I am, yes. So we so. are. Um, so the foundation is based in D.C. and a lot of our work will will continue out of that front. And then, of course, galvanizing and, and being that platform and unifier similar to what the Biden Cancer in- Initiative did, I, I, I would love to do that for the rare cancer community. There's so much good work being done, and yet not a lot of people are aware of it, and we want to shine a light on that. Um, so, so uh, you know, uncovering and making aware the, the resources that cur- currently exist for patients so that when they are diagnosed, um, they have a place to come to that lays it out for them, I think is, is something that we will be focusing on as well. Yeah, the very definition of advocacy is making sure someone, uh, the next person is better off than the first person. Absolutely, right. absolutely. <clears throat> I'm, again, I'm a huge fan. You've done so much in your career and it's like you're just getting started. Mm. You know, we talk about, I'm in like version six of my life, you're in like version 40,000 <laughs> of your life. <laughs> And so much more to go, but it's oh, been, I so man, appreciate that. what an honor to have you here to chat and welcome to the rare disease world. Thank you. It was an honor to be here, honestly, and uh, to have this conversation with you. And I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.